AI is honestly being integrated in every aspect of healthcare. I think that's what's kind of mind blowing is you could literally pick any step in the healthcare process and AI has been tested in some way. AI also has the ability to distill down information in an easily digestible manner. So patients who don't speak English as a first language or have um, uh, maybe not as advanced education, you can ask ChatGPT to output patient information about methotrexate, about rheumatoid arthritis at a grade five level or in other languages as well. That's Dr. Carrie Yi and Dr. Carson Chin. They are our guests on Around the Room. Welcome back. I'm Daniel Ennis and joining is my co-host, Dr. Janet Pope. Today we're hitting on a hot topic, not just in rheumatology, but pretty much everything, artificial intelligence or AI. This promises to be a pretty fascinating conversation, but before we dive into that, we want to let you know about upcoming episodes, including with Dr. Daphna Gladman talking about lupus, and a new French episode about spondylitis and upcoming guidelines with Dr. Hugues allard Chamard. If you have questions you would like answered by room experts, please contact us through the CRA Twitter account at CRASCRroom or by email info at room.ca. And for future Clinical Pearls episodes, please get in touch if you have challenging cases you want to present on the podcast. Now on with the show and our guests. Dr. Carson Chen is a clinical instructor in the Division of Rheumatology at UBC and is a consultant rheumatologist at Burnaby Hospital. He is the current vice president of the BC Society of Rheumatologists. He has a special interest in AI. Dr. Kerry Yi is a rheumatologist and assistant professor at the University of Alberta and the K Edmonton Clinic at the University of Alberta Hospital in Edmonton, where she runs the Rheumatology in Immuno-Oncology Clinic. She is a co-author of the Arthritis and Rheumatology Journal article, Doctor versus AI, Patient and Physician Evaluation of Large Language Model Responses to Rheumatology Patient Questions, a cross-sectional study. Carrie and Carson, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Of course. Um, before we get into some of the, the heavier content, I did want to start out with defining some of the important terms we're going to be using throughout the discussion. And uh, I'm actually very interested in what Janet thinks about some of these uh, these topics first. So, Janet, how do you how would you define AI or artificial intelligence? You know, Daniel, that's an excellent question, and I know we'll ask the ex- experts in a second. But I think of it the old way would be the algorithms. I'm searching for a plane flight on a such and such date, and there's an algorithm that will find the cost and where I want to land, et cetera, et cetera, and maybe even give me prices around it. So that's all programmed algorithms. I think of artificial intelligence that it's going beyond that, and it's iterative processes where it learns, and we don't think of computers as learning, so we think of it almost in a way like an artificial brain. So I think reasoning or learning from the past that it's been done is what I think of as AI. I think that's a, a more elaborate answer than mine, which was I think of C3PO. So why don't we uh, put it out to um, Carrie and Carson? How do you have anything to add to that? Are there kind of is there? Can we be more precise in how we think about AI? I think that's a really really good explanation from Janet. Yeah. So I think in broad terms, artificial intelligence is really just the field of computer science that focuses on development of human intelligence and acts like a a human. So I think the very beginnings of AI, there was a gentleman named Alan Turing who actually coined this thing called the Turing test. 
And that was sort of the definition of AI initially was, could a computer or a machine act and function like a human and the other person on the other side would not recognize or realize that was human and in that fact would pass the Turing test and hence would have artificial intelligence. I think artificial intelligence, you know, there's many different definitions and there's been a lot of progress, not just with machine learning and initial algorithms. At the beginning of all this, the artificial intelligence, like Janet was saying, was more algorithm based. You would tell it X, Y, and Z and able to figure out, you know, the, the next step versus the new types of um, artificial intelligence are based on machine learning, where the machine actually learns on its own. One of the classic examples is really teaching a computer to identify a cat. You show it a, a cat photo one time, it gets the maybe the uh, the ears wrong or the eyes wrong. Someone corrects it. You show it multiple photos of cats over and over and over again, and the machine will learn and eventually can identify a cat versus a dog versus a human. So in that way, you know, machine learning, you don't actually need to give it specific parameters. You just give it very basic parameters at the beginning, and it continues to learn on its own. So I think that's sort of the 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 progress with with AI and and then there's also you know advancements with generative AI as well. Yeah, I'd appreciate it. Can you go on to tell us a little bit about what that what that implies? How's that different from just AI? I think the the new kid on the block was ChatGPT, and what got everyone excited recently was you know um, this new type of AI, which was generative. So that's part of the G for the. Uh, GPT. So nowadays, not only can it identify cats, it can actually produce novel and new material that's never been seen before. And that's sort of based on some of the large language models um, that's been around now with um, basically scraping and learning from the internet and trying to predict the next word. So that was really, really exciting. And I think that's the, the next evolution of AI. That's really interesting. So there's been a kind of a major shift in from algorithms where um, it can answer questions, but it's not learning new things or evolving on its own to um, programs that uh, are somehow able to generate new content. Um, we want to kind of talk about how all of this applies to medicine and rheumatology in particular. Um Maybe we can talk a little bit, uh, Carson and Carrie, uh, you both may have um, some knowledge about this, about how AI is being used in clinics now. Uh, maybe Carrie, can you speak to that at all? Sure. I mean, AI is honestly being integrated in every aspect of healthcare. I think that's what's kind of mind blowing is you could literally pick any step in the healthcare process and AI has been tested in some way in that area. Um, some basic, like really exciting ways AI is being utilized in clinic would be like automatic, like progress note writing for you, right? Having a mic in your office, listening in on your conversation, and then writing a beautiful soap note or writing a beautiful consultation note, and it's ready to send. To me, that would save so much time, open up so much capacity for seeing more rheumatology patients. So I think that's one thing that's coming down the pipeline. There are already lots of companies that are offering this service um, that I think I would definitely want to incorporate into my clinical practice. There's also lots of things coming in terms of, I mean, radiology has kind of been in the forefront of AI utilization in healthcare. 
And so there's been studies showing, you know, AI could read ultrasounds and predict rheumatoid arthritis, or AI could, you know, look at hand x-rays um, and tell you someone's future BMD or uh, if they're going to have osteoporosis. Um, so lots and lots of exciting things happening. Now let's Car- Carson talk about some other things. No, I think that's a, uh, it's a really, really interesting. So Carrie mentioned sort of the dictation software. So some of the programs I've actually played around with and tried to dictate a note with a patient here. And it actually surprisingly does an excellent job. There are, like Carrie mentioned, multiple different companies available, some of them free, some of them with a monthly subscription. But I think that is for sure coming down the road. It's already available now. I played with it a little bit. But to be honest, I have a lot of my note done sort of with templates, with my nursing. So I don't actually need to actually dictate that much uh, on my date for my day-to-day practice. But it's very, very good. I tried it with a patient where I had a long conversation about their holidays. Oh, Mr. Smith, so-and-so, how was your holiday? Did you, how are your children? And it, it knows to leave all that out of the note. And it knows that's not relevant in your note. And then you summarize at the end of the encounter. This is the plan come back in this many months, take the methotrexate and outlines it and numbers it in a, in, a, in, a, in a numbered format. So I think that's really, really appealing for rheumatologists, but even more so for primary care practitioners, I would imagine with high volumes of patients, patients coming in every five to 10 minutes, I, I think it would be a game changer for uh, primary care practitioners, but even specialists as well. And Janet, have you bumped into any uh, AI applications in, in your work? Well, first of all, I think some people are writing papers with AI. Uh, apparently, we're not supposed to for submitting them to places. But um, by the time you're going to write your paper, you've got an abstract done in general. You might have presented at a meeting, so you have a poster. And you have a background, especially if there was a grant. So some people have used it. That so I've heard. But um, right now, the journals are frowning upon using it. But really... It, it is your data. You're not, it's not fabricating data to the best of my knowledge. Um, I've seen people write it for uh, letters. Um, some, one of my friends, not to be mentioned, um, <laughs> there was an appeal for a lawyer's letter. And this friend who's very computer savvy went on to chat GPT and the lawyer said that was the best disability letter he had ever received. Uh oh. <laughs> um that that's very interesting. So there are some, you know, what seems kind of like administrative uses of it where we use it to dictate notes. There may be some implications for uh kind of writing other medical legal um, some Im- implications for writing research papers. Um, how about in how we kind of communicate um, with patients? Um, maybe Carson, can you take that one? What do you think? AI also has really, really the ability to distill down information in an easily digestible manner. So patients who don't speak English as a first language or have um, uh, maybe not as advanced education, you can ask ChatGPT to output um, a summary or patient information about methotrexate, about rheumatoid arthritis in a sort of at a grade 10 level or grade five level or whatever the appropriate education level for the patient and or in other languages as well. So I, have, I see a lot of patients in that speak Chinese and I've tried it with ChatGPT. I don't do it very often, but I have tried before to ask it to 
summarize or give a patient handout on exercise for back pain or knee pain in Chinese, and they can do that for you. So I think uh, patient education materials, I think it'd be really, really fantastic, and you can tailor it to each individual patient. And and Carrie, I'd like this kind of leads into um, one of your uh, research projects. Um, I'd love if you could kind of describe some of the evolving research landscape, and and we can discuss that paper because you had some really, um, really interesting findings that I want to dig into a little bit. Sure. So. The reason we did this study in the first place is that I was starting to see some articles coming through my newsfeed about, you know, chat GPT and this specialty answers questions that, you know, physicians are rating really high. So I was like, oh, it's that good. You know, is it being used in rheumatology? We get lots of patient questions. So we're lucky because we have albertarheumatology.com and there's an ask the rheumatologist page where people can submit real, real patient questions. And about once a month, a rheumatologist will pick a question, answer it and post it online. So we have this big repository of all these real questions and real rheumatologist answers that weren't generated to compete against AI. I think that's key too. There's a lot of studies where people are artificially making up questions for chat GPT and then making up answers that are human um, to compare to the AI output. And I don't think that's real life. So we were a lucky one to have that resource. So what we did was we picked the last 30 questions. We didn't select for good questions, bad questions, you know, questions that weren't worded properly, grammar could be off, it could be very specific to Alberta, it could be about drug coverage, we didn't select it all. So we fed them verbatim into we use Microsoft Bing, which is actually based off of the latest generation of chat GPT. But the reason we picked Bing is that there's sort of three settings. So we could pick the concise setting to try and match word count a little bit closer to the human ones. So we fed them in, got the AI answer, put them into the survey against the human answer. And I think the coolest thing about our study is that we didn't tell anyone that we surveyed what the study was about. We completely blinded the purpose of the study, um, which again is different from other studies where they said, hey, this is an AI study, like pick the one you like more, which in the back of your head, if you already have biases, you're trying to pick out which one is which. And then, so anyway, so that was the other thing. So we had patients evaluate them for readability and um, comprehensiveness. And then we had four rheumatologists rate them on readability, comprehensiveness, and then accuracy. And let's, let's chat that's about the, the that's a really fascinating study design. So, so first mm-hmm. off, I think that's, that's really clever to use answers that have already been given outside of the context of uh, trying to beat AI, because you're right that I, I feel like that's a different approach than just what would be your natural answer. Um, but what, yeah. you know, some of the results that I found really interesting, one being that patients rated no significant difference between AI and physician responses in comprehensiveness or readability, um, but doctors could often tell them apart. Um, what was your takeaway from that? What did you think of that? My takeaway from the results is that we have to be pretty careful here because patients are finding the AI generated answers really good. They're happy with them. They're saying it's the same as the, the MD generated answers. And so once we had everyone evaluate, then we unblinded them and we said, hey, guess what? One of the answers was AI generated 
And then we showed them all again and asked them to pick out which one was AI and which one was human. Guess which one it was. So we found that patients couldn't tell at all. The discrimination was like 50-50. Right. It was like rolling a dice. Whereas physicians could pick it out really well. On top of that, the patients preferred the AI answers just as much as physician answers, even when the accuracy was actually really low. So <laughs> oh, they no. couldn't tell that an answer wasn't good. And I think that's what's most concerning about these results. It'd be one thing if there are bad results, AI gives you bad answers, but patients could kind of tell it's a bad answer, but they can't. But physicians can, and physicians generally rated the AI answers much lower. We also asked at the point of unblinding, did you know that this was the purpose of the study? And not a single patient knew that this was the purpose of the study or that one of them was AI generated. So the blinding definitely wasn't impacting um, the MD's evaluations. I, I find that that really fascinating because um, one of, you know, as as uh, Carson, you, you were talking about um the communication piece. And here we're seeing that from just just for comprehensiveness, readability, like the communication piece, the AI does a good job of speaking in the language that a patient's going to understand. And I think that sometimes a criticism for, um, uh, for doctors is that sometimes we don't speak in language that patients understand. Um, and, and so like this you know, the hope would be that maybe this could be a bridge to answer questions for patients or, you know, hey, the doctor told me about um, starting methotrexate. Can you explain that to me again? Can you explain that simpler? And you can spend all the time you want with the AI until you get the answer that you understand. But of course, all of that requires that the data that's coming out of it is accurate. So, you know, it's it's a an interesting finding but a concerning finding that um, patients can't necessarily tell the difference, even though there's there might be low accuracy on certain questions. Um, Janet, what what does that sound like to you? Well, I think it sounds like the medical student. <laughs> Kidding, <laughs> the medical <laughs> student versus the expert, right? Um, no, I I think though that probably some of the things that the physicians will pick out as this, the, you know, gets smarter and faster, et cetera, will probably be a little bit picky where for most people, an answer that is written at a, you know, grade eight to grade 12 level that is not, you know, against a drug that we're recommending, that it's not putting in things from the internet where people say, oh, if you take this drug, you're taking chemo or you'll lose your hair or things. I think if we look at it that way, then I, I think that these are really, relatively speaking, early days. And it seems like from when I hear podcasts in this area that mm -hmm. the information is doubling, tripling, like like by hours, not by even weeks, mm -hmm. that more and more power, again, because it's learning. So um, with that in mind, I agree that I think we might have to beware and that we'd have to check over things. Um 
people have also used it in medical um, students have looking for differential diagnosis, put it in chat GPT. The patient has swollen MCPs, their feet are tender with walking, they're stiff for an hour, and you're not going to come up with usually say something like hypertension. Mm -hmm. You are going to come up with a differential of polyarticular inflammatory arthritis and it, so I think as a learning tool that that would be okay too, but I don't think we want notes going back to primary care where there's a long differential on someone with established seropositive RA. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, Carson, where do you predict AI is going in the near future? Um, Janet started um, to to talk about like, you know, coming up with differentials when you put in your, the, the, the symptoms, where do you think things are going? Should I start looking for a new job or uh, am I safe for now? <laughs> I think you're safe for now. You're an excellent physician, Danny. <laughs> so, I mean, I think AI, AI is coming whether we like it or not. And I think AI is not going to replace us. It's going to augment us. And I think we should all embrace technology. We should embrace AI. We shouldn't be afraid of AI. I don't think AI is coming to replace your jobs, although radiologists might say otherwise. Uh, for rheumatologists, I think it might be harder to do. But I think what I picture as the future is sort of what Carrie was saying, you know, have a microphone listening to our conversation, for example. And as it listens to our conversation, it will generate the note. But at the same time, it'll listen and pick out, you know, pertinent positives and negatives in the history, if we sort of dictate our physical examination, it can combine all that information and perhaps give us a differential diagnosis at the end of the, at the consult. So maybe we say, I think it's rheumatoid arthritis, but maybe, you know, the AI will tell us, well, did you consider reactive arthritis? Did you consider maybe ankylvascularized or something else, maybe another diagnosis that didn't, uh, didn't jump off the page at us it's because the AI has already looked through the EMR collected the notes, listened to the conversation and suggest to us, maybe consider these additional tests. And it'll be up to us to decide, should we add on these additional tests or not? And to continue with further investigations. And then not only that, I think what Carrie was saying, you know, using the, um, the chat GBT um, and to answer patient questions, I guess the caveat is that chat GBT is not trained as like a medical specific uh, mm -hmm. AI technology, right? It's a general sort of AI technology that's trained for everything. It's passed the uh, uh, LSAS, SATs, medical board examinations, but it's not specifically meant for medicine. So people use the term, you know, garbage in, garbage out. So, you know, yeah. if it wasn't trained on good data, it can sometimes hallucinate. You know, we hear that term sometimes with AI, where AI sometimes will make up answers and sound very confident and pretend they're the experts so the patients can't tell that they're getting bad information, mm -hmm. but at the, uh, but it's actually incorrect. So I think the future is, you know, maybe moving away from these general chat GPT models and into more medicine specific ones. And there are already a few companies that are doing that, including Google. Google has a, um, a specific AI company called MedPalm, MedPalm 2, I think it's called. And that's based on, you know, specifically trained for medicine and trained with medical content. So I would hope the answers from uh, medicine-specific AI program would be more accurate in that case. And that's sort of where I see the future, you know, going, you know, with, you know, AI in the background, just listening, giving us suggestions, you know, and giving us mm -hmm. some added things that maybe just things to consider. You know, um, on some of like the, the, the tech podcasts I was listening to and, in preparing for this, like hard fork and, and, and elsewhere, there's kind of two ideas being held at the same time. And one is that, um, we shouldn't freak out, 
right? These AIs are early days. You know, they're in many important contexts distinguishable from experts. And so, you know, don't don't be too fussed. Um, it's not coming for your job just yet, which, which um, you've articulated. Um, and then on the other hand, I'm also hearing this sentiment that, um, you know, we may be underestimating the power of um, a, of generative AI and large language models that you're right, like once we start feeding in really high quality data, that um, once you have, uh, you know, good stuff in, you're going to start getting good stuff out. And I, I wonder about, um, and, and I'm curious on uh, Janet and Carrie for you to chime in on this. You know, I'm only as good a doctor as the things I remember or recognizing the limits of, of my knowledge and memory. And there's going to be a bit of a gray area in between there where I don't know that I don't know something um, or there's a paper I didn't see yet or I didn't read or I forget. And AI seems like, well, if you could put in every single paper ever published on pick your topic, it shouldn't it be a better um, doctor than me? Shouldn't it be able to come up with the diagnosis better or with higher accuracy than me? Um, maybe we're certainly not there yet, but um, I wonder, is, is that in the pipeline? Should we think about that? Um, Janet, Carrie, what do you, what do you yeah, think? So, Daniel, maybe the problem with that, though, is that lots of papers are kind of would be irrelevant to what we're doing. And we don't want a zebra, like partly why we're quite efficient at certain patients in clinic are because it's pattern recognition. I don't need AI to tell me the patient has NEOA. Mm -hmm. If the AI could smell it 20 years in advance or something, you know, something really crazy like that tactile, say, I felt this person's leg and they're going to have NEOA, something crazy. <laughs> you know, that's different. And we don't have yeah. anything to do about it today for 20 years from now. But I think what we'd want to do is have weightings of relevance and probability, although AI will iterate and learn that over time. But I do think when it's something rare, we all have patients where you go, this doesn't fit. And I won't know the syndrome that has eight people published, you know, the, the initial Vexus patients, right? Now there's hundreds and hundreds of them published. Mm -hmm. But initially, um, probably AI would have recognized it more than I would have sitting in clinic, not even remembering what it all stood for. So I think things like that. There's also areas where we know we'll never have expertise. I know when there's these kids that graduate to adult care with all these febrile periodic fever syndromes. I don't know what any of them are. I know for about <laughs> two days after a lecture, if I'm lucky and then I don't, but AI knows and they'd say, Oh, I don't think this is um, a Kinneret person, or I think this one should be on more than prednisone because they would know the data and they would probably know the past history of the person if the EMR was fed into AI. So mm -hmm. just an example of where it'd be good and an example of where it might not be as good. Mm -hmm. Carrie, what, what are your thoughts? So this is a very good segue because I've been thinking a lot about this because I'm putting together a grant to do a source verified chat room. So I'm working with the Alberta Health Services AI chair right now based on kind of this pilot study that we've just published saying, oh, there's some issues with you know, using the current iteration of ChatGPT um, is to actually feed it the sources we want. 
and say, generate your answers based off of these sources. So um, I've been writing this grant. So we sort of have these steps we're going to take. The first thing is to like get patients and rheumatologists to identify their sources, whether that be like drug plan coverage websites, right? We use that a lot. So it could be like, what does Sun Life cover? You know, does it cover this drug? What is the criteria? To room textbooks, to room journals, and so on, or trusted websites. And then what Ross Mitchell, the AI chair, has done is he's created these source verified large language models already. So for example, he did one off of Cecil's textbook. And so you could ask questions. And the cool thing is that he's created um, some transparency in the modeling. So it will actually tell you, I got this answer from a combination of these pages and these lines, and I'll highlight it for you and show it to you. So that's what we're planning to do for the next step. And then the next step after that, the third step would be to actually evaluated against ChatGPT. So we are already thinking about how do we use the right sources so it's not garbage in, like mm-hmm. you said. So it's, you know, quality in and quality mm-hmm. out. So this is something we're working on right now. I think that's interesting because, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of wondering, like, are we as doctors greater than the sum of our parts, right? Like, I've read all these papers and done all this training. Um, but when you put it all together, do, do I kind of reach... Um, a bit of a, a next level that AI just because it's not human, geez, it just can't get there. Um, or am I just a mushier, slower computer? And if you train an AI properly and give it the tools to say, well, this is how research is done well, and these are this is the hierarchy of evidence, and these are the biases to look out for, and this is how you think about it, could it do a better job of reading an article than I do? Um, could it decide what's good info and what's bad info. Um, Carson, I know you've, you've done a lot of thinking on this um, topic. Do you, do you think that we're going to move to that level of complexity or, or it will, um, for the near future, it is really going to uh, be an aid. It's, it's really not going to uh, like, do you think it's going to dramatically change our jobs or is it just going to make them a bit better? I don't think it would dramatically change our job. I think it's going to make us all better clinicians. You know, it's a tool. It's mm-hmm. another tool that we have to make us better. At the end of the day, we are still the physician. The patients trust us. The patient. If I was a patient, I wouldn't be just wanting to talk to a computer and have them spit out a bunch of paperwork to me. I still want to have that you know, personal connection with my physician. And you, you are still you know, in charge of that patient, but the AI can augment your abilities and supplement you. So if I had a very complicated scleroderma patient, and I didn't know what to do. Maybe if I had the AI trained with Janet Pope and just look through her EMR and just learned over and over, look through all her cases and Janet would correct that, that AI program. And I, I asked for the these the Janet Pope scleroderma AI to give me some assistance about some recommendations. I'll have some general thoughts, but maybe I have Janet to give me sort of a second look, almost like a second opinion right off the bat. Make sure you don't, you know, make sure we, we we investigate for this or add on this treatment. I think it's gonna it's gonna get there. Mm-hmm. Why not? If I was mm-hmm. training an AI program, I would look for the world experts in every single subspecialty field. Like like Janet was mentioning, autoinflammatory disease. You don't we don't have a lot of experience as adult rheumatologists, but what if I had an AI trained with the best autoinflammatory disease rheumatologists in the world and just kept those rheumatologists would keep trained the AI, teach them when they're making mistakes and correct them as if they're training a, a fellow or a resident and 
they keep training. They learn from that that one group, and then they go to a different group and just keep learning. And that will be technically the best, <laughs> probably most well trained right. uh, clinician that we have. So I think you know I think we're going to move in that direction. Like it really depends, you know, the quality of evidence that we're we're putting into these algorithms and these computers. And I think it'd be very easy for us to select the best clinicians in the world to train from. And and why wouldn't we? Why would right. we? Why would we do anything less than that? We'll be back to Around the Room in a minute after this message from the CRA, who want to let you know about the Adverse Events Video-Based Accredited Learning Program. These modules have been designed for rheumatologists to improve their understanding of adverse events during the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. The resources are available exclusively to CRA members and invited guests on the CRA website. Access to the site is password protected. To receive your password, please contact info at room.ca. This program was supported by an unrestricted educational grant from BMS Canada. An independent CRA scientific planning committee was responsible for the scientific integrity, objectivity, and balance of this content. And now, back to Around the Room. Returning to kind of the research question, um, Carrie, you're designing research studies, evaluating um, and employing AI. Um, what about using AI to conduct research? Janet, you mentioned using it kind of for writing papers, but um, you know, do you see a future where we are applying some of these models to look through administrative data or um, various databases? And saying like, find us, uh, you know, a prediction rule for rheumatoid arthritis or a prediction rule for osteoarthritis. Is AI going to be more maybe successful at doing that on a massive scale than we are doing it, you know, in in many ways by hand? Absolutely. So the kind of research I mostly do is population health research using ICD codes. They're notoriously inaccurate. Even the most accurate diseases using ICD codes is actually not that accurate. And for some diseases, its accuracy is terrible, right? So for rheumatoid arthritis, it's not bad. You could usually pick it up with two rheumatologist ICD codes of 714.0. But for GERD, for example, it'll pick up like, you know, it's the accuracy is like 10%. Like it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. But I actually think, yeah, it is terrible. So I actually think we're going to probably get to the point where we don't need to do studies using ICD codes. I think we're going to have these really powerful models that can read a whole bunch of progress notes, EMR um, notes, Mm -hmm. and then give us a really accurate diagnosis. If you just imagine the notes that go along to give someone a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis versus an ICD code that could be coded by anyone during a claim Mm -hmm. is definitely going to be more accurate. So I feel like this whole ICD administrative database is going to be a thing of the past once AI is incorporated into EMRs. Are there kind of uh, major ethical concerns that, that that raises for you? Like, does that worry you or uh, does that, are you kind of more excited by that, um, that sci-fi future? I'm more excited by it as a researcher, but I think you have to be really careful. So, you know, the, there's been a lot of talk about bias, inherent bias in these models, because they're trained on data that's biased, right? There's human bias 
even in how we, for example, diagnose rheumatoid arthritis. Maybe we diagnose it more freely with certain races or certain genders or certain occupations or certain socioeconomic status. That inherent bias is actually going to be trained into that model, unfortunately. When you're training it on all of our progress notes, it's learning from that. So what I one on the flip side of that is you can actually try and identify some of that bias by using AI. Because when you use explanatory AI, which is being developed now, you can actually ask the model, you made this diagnosis of RA, what information did you use from the patient's chart to make that diagnosis? If what you're getting is, say, a postal code, that really shouldn't be an important thing. You've maybe identified a source of bias in your data or how humans diagnose it. So I actually think that's a really cool way to pick up bias. And then you can actually try and train that out of a model. So I think there are ethical concerns, but then I think, again, don't be scared about it. Just have a thoughtful process to overcome it. And lots of people are working on those other side areas to make AI better. That's a really fascinating idea. And it it popped into my head that on a much more micro level, um, I'd be curious to use it. Uh, This is obviously isn't as important, but, you know, asking the AI to look through my notes and figure out like the things that I have underdiagnosed, overdiagnosed, missed diagnoses on, um, you know, for kind of formative feedback for myself um, to make me better. And, um, you know, it, it doesn't sound like we're, we're quite there. Uh, but I, I think listening to all of you talk about it, it does seem like there's just, there, there really is um, a great deal that we can do with the technology uh, with the caveat that we have to pay attention to its limitations and uh, make sure that we kind of respect our the same ethical principles that that we always have. Uh, Janet, do you see uh, adding AI into your practice uh, making you somehow more efficient? I can see that I could be efficient in a lot of different ways. I like <laughs> the idea of note taking. I like the idea of you could train instead of saying watch a uh, YouTube video on about methotrexate. You could train it for different levels, different speeds to give information. They could um, take it home with them, so to speak. Here's the link to understand again or show your family. I think that stuff would be great. But I think in the future, it's going to combine big data with loads of single cell sequence of individual patients to say, as a, for instance, we don't know who will respond to what drug. And when we start getting into expensive medications, maybe AI will do a better job because we just, I could flip a coin and say, you know, heads is TNF and tails is another BD Mard in RA or uh, Jack or something like that. And I have no clue what the response rates will be because they're all on average about the same. Mm-hmm. But within an individual, they're not the same. And I wouldn't be surprised someday that there will be a finger prick. And I know it sounds really, really futuristic. But with that, it's like saying something to the effect of this patient has a 90% chance of breaking through on current therapy over the next three months. Mm -hmm. So you find out, oh, they're actually not adherent. That's why they're going to break through. Or you find out they're already developing changes in their immune system, that sort of drug resistance or what have you. I think that like we're not there yet because we wouldn't know 
how to start training it. Mm -hmm. But I really think, but the ethical downside is, you know, from the time a baby is born, are you going to start, you know, typing everything and collecting everything? It sounds kind of a bit big brother-ish. And if it's for the good of that kid or that family, isn't that great? Mm -hmm. But if it's used so you can market to their vulnerabilities, um, you know, there's a lot of other things way beyond medicine where I think um, there could be abuse um, that, you know, AI could make missiles go off, could crash the stock market. They would have, there could be ways of doing things. And, you know, it is, it is here and it's coming more so, but I think like anything, um, technology in general is neither good nor bad. It's how we use it. Like, I mean, but on an ethical, it can be good technology because it works, but it's neither unethical or, or like it's bad. It's not bad or evil. It's how we employ it. And I know a lot of companies that are, you know, at the forefront are having open dialogue on how do you keep it out of the hands where it could be really misused, what checks and balances would make something implode if the wrong series of things, you know, I guess violating someone's privacy, say if someone hacks in and wants to know uh, data on a patient, how do you know that this is, you know, an attack, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I think all those checks and balances they'll think of, but in general, most of AI from my understanding for things like that is reactionary because you don't know who's going to know how to do what. These are really brilliant people that are coding, I guess, to break into things anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, this has been a really interesting conversation so before we actually let you go, are there other things that you wanted to actually talk about that we didn't ask you about that you actually think is like worth having a, a quick chat about? You know, there was one thing I thought of, Janet, you had said something that triggered this thing that I just think is so neat. Oh, yeah, it was like, I saw an article recently that a 15 second recording of someone's voice could diagnose diabetes with like 99% accuracy. That's incredible. So what? it just made me think, <laughs> yes. yeah, that's, it's that's, totally that can't incredible. be real. Or, or Parkinson's it is, or epilepsy from those, the dogs that can diagnose cancer. It's crazy. Like it's really, it is. It is. It's, it's hmm. so weird. So there's something that is beyond our human detection. And exactly. it's crazy. I think that's It's it. crazy. But it can't diagnose you're going to have a car accident in two hours unless yeah. it knows you're really impaired. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks, Carrie. That's a really fascinating. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting that app <laughs> so my, my patients can call it and get a diagnosis. Uh, Carson, any, anything else that you wanted to mention? Yeah, I'm I'm excited for artificial intelligence. I, I welcome it with open arms. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I want it to no. come sooner rather than later. I, I think, think you made a strong case for it. Yeah, I think it's going to make our lives better. We're going to be more efficient. I think it's going to be like, like having a super reliable, uh, very trainable assistant, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, and it can, like the chat box and everything, like I said, like I get so many calls and emails from patients about little mundane things like, oh, I have an issue with this medicine. I have like stomach upset from the methotrexate and I always have to respond these tiny little like emails or memos to my secretary. They have to call the patient. If they just had like a direct chat box, to me or to my my clinic or whatever and i trained it to answer the way i like to answer these questions like why mm -hmm. wouldn't it just answer for me and then i don't have to every day like you know send these things back i think there's going to be a lot of interesting applications for 
for uh, AI in, in, our, in, our, in our future. And I think it's going to come a lot sooner than we think. I think like in five years from now, five years from now, I bet we're going to have like AI like as part of our, part of our clinical practice, more so than, right. than what we expect. Totally. I think that I am still feeling a little bit anxious about the future, though, Carrie and Carson, you've definitely made me feel a little bit more hopeful about how we can use this and, and uh, um, make, it, make it make us better doctors. So I wanted to thank you both for coming on the show today. That was really fascinating. Thanks for having us. That was fun. Thanks so much. Totally our pleasure. That's it for this episode of Around the Room. For questions, comments, and future episode ideas, email us at info at room.ca or tag our Twitter account with your question at C-R-A-S-C-R Room. Around the Room is produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Aaron Stewart. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. And of course, an extra special thanks to Dr. Yi and Dr. Chen. And of course, Dr. Janet Pope. Our theme music was composed by Aaron Fonwell. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and write a review wherever you listen. It helps people find these interviews. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Until next time, I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening.